The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Until a few moments ago, I, like the rest of you, thought that this was the end. We'd all die here. But now, we've found a way for us all to escape. We have only one chance to make this thing work, so my orders must be followed without question. Anyone who disobeys threatens all of us, and they will be executed immediately. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, August the 6th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Paul McKeever. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be my orders must be followed without question. Anyone who disobeys threatens all of us, and they will be executed immediately. Well, that appears to be the philosophy adopted by the vast majority of politicians, and, most regrettably, by a significant portion of the victims of that threat, a phenomenon that we'll attempt to make some sense of right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, consider offering your financial support. Everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials, written by one of our regular guests, Dave Plum. Well, Paul, nice to have you join us again. It's been a while since we got together oh, as nice co-hosts to on the show. Yeah, nice to be back. <laughs> yeah. How are you faring through these COVID-19 shutdowns? Oh, not badly. I mean, I'm out there with my walk every day, just like I was before the shutdown, and I still go to the office every day. I haven't missed a day of work, um, although I do most of my work, which is lawyering, uh, yeah. via telephone now rather than face-to-face meetings, so I get to wear my shorts to the office. <laughs> oh, lucky you. Yeah. Well, we should let our listeners know that you are, of course, an employment lawyer, and you are also the leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. And over these past several weeks, or maybe I should say months now, <laughs> You were the first person to alert us to the dangers of Ontario's Bill 195, which I wanted to mention. And you've also been following the Ontario COVID stats meticulously on a daily basis since they were being released online. And a couple weeks ago, while you went on holiday, you gave me some homework to do in that regard. Uh, And thank you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, Bob, you you, uh, sent me those... uh, the daily yeah. uh, the data so that I could, when I got back, because I was out in the boonies, so there was no uh, no internet out there, but right. uh, I was able to catch up on all the graphing and et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's important, I think, to have your own focus on the data to the extent the government's giving you data, because um, their focus is always on so many cases have been found today, and that's not really what's important. What you want to see is the trends, which they're not giving you because they erase the data every single day. When I was getting these pages for you and keeping up to dates in the stats and doing this on a daily basis, you know, I saw how low the numbers were. You know, I wasn't sure if I was reading the data properly, uh, particularly given the sudden forced face masking rituals that we have to be dealing with now, now that the numbers are so low, which just does not 
make sense. That does not compute. No. So what did you find about the stats and what conclusions does that lead you to? Well, the, the general so trend, yeah, the general trend is that, you know, we went from, let's say, uh, mid-March, very low numbers, to mid-April were the highest numbers, but they weren't all that high. I mean, we're talking at, at the peak which was around April 21st or so, uh, we had on some days as many as 83 people dying, uh, but it could vary widely between, say, 40 and 80. And then uh, that dramatically dropped off to the point where now we, we have somewhere between zero and two or three people dying per day. The number of cases has never been very high as a percentage. So in other words, if you test, let's say, a 1,000 people, I know it's more than that, but let's just say you test a 1,000 people, arguably about... 950 of them would come back negative, meaning they don't have the virus. So it's it's around 90, 95%, pretty consistently right across the board that they test the person and they don't have it. So I think what's happening is that they're testing people who have no symptoms, but they're, they're for example, healthcare workers, frontline workers, making sure they catch it before they uh, develop any you know ability to communicate it to others. So there's probably a lot of that going on. There was originally, I think, a lot of testing of people in the old folks' homes. I imagine most of those places uh, have experienced their deaths now. And, uh, you know, that's where most of the dying was happening, or at least people in that age bracket, but especially the people who lived closely together in those facilities. So I don't expect the so-called second wave uh, of, of deaths or anything like that. There might be an increase in the number of uh, infections if people are spending more time together because everyone's going to get it eventually or else those you know who don't get it will have an inability to catch it and we've talked about this at some points um there are people who actually do not have the ability to become infected because they lack the receptors where the virus uh connects but yes i, think- I, ra- I ran into that fact frequently among various quote-unquote frontline doctors and virologists and epidemiologists right right and they were all saying the same thing and i'm thinking geez that's going to present a real problem for people under this constant blanket of testing and tracing and all that those folks are going to be in trouble they're going to regret not being able to get the virus <laughs> <laughs> well and the worst part is they're they're going to be treated the same as everybody else so yeah you know even if they they can't get the virus when and i say when not if uh the government starts talking about mandatory inoculation you know they're going to be inoculated for something they can't even catch right it's, it's like, like being inoculated for foot fungus but you don't have any legs you know and that seems to me that, that that would be almost a death threat to them i would think well it's completely contrary to the hippocratic oath i mean the idea is do no harm and if you can do no good then injecting someone with anything foreign is not good i mean right. there's risks with anything you stick in your body I and mean, let's face it so where, where does that leave us now? How does the government justify continuing these shutdowns and these regulations and these constant threats and, and face mask mandates? Well, I think the problem is that we have a premier who has effectively um, left his chair for the last four months uh, because he doesn't want to make any decisions. And that way he hopes he won't get blamed for making decisions. Uh, and he's just deferred to doctors. But doctors are so single-mindedly focused on, you know, um, not letting any patients die that the the job of defending the life, liberty, and property of individuals takes an utter back seat. I mean, if your only concern is not letting one, you know, the patient die, you don't care if the patient has any money anymore. You don't care if he has any liberty anymore. All you care is that his heart's still beating. And so that's what doctors do. That's what their job's about. They're not there to make sure that you, you have finances when, the, when sure. the illness is gone or to make sure that you uh, can still dance around. They want to make sure that you just don't die on the table. And so they've turned the entire jurisdiction 
in whatever jurisdiction we're talking about, but in, for example, in Ontario, Canada, they've turned the entire jurisdiction into one great big hospital where everyone has to walk around as though they're in a hospital with a mask on, even though we now know so much more about who gets infected, what happens if they do get infected. Most people uh, experience no symptoms at all. Those under 20 don't die. Uh, generally speaking, we've not had, a, I think, a single case of anyone dying in Ontario under the age of 20. And those who die normally are in their 80s with multiple comorbidities. So we're going through this whole thing, I think, at this stage, because A, we've got a premier who doesn't want to be held accountable for anything that might happen. Uh, and so he's deferring to medical doctors who have single-minded focus on uh, saving lives. And because that, well, if he goes back to governing, if he allows people to go back to their jobs, go shopping, etc., whether or not anything negative happens, there's going to be all these uh, so-called Karens out there who are they're terrified that the, the, the sky is going to fall in. Or in some cases, I believe they're not even terrified. They just love this state of affairs so much. I mean, there's literally a large contingent of people who not only don't fear this kind of living, where how come I have to wear a mask all the time? How come I have to follow all these precautions, wipe my hands, so many people in the store go down the aisle this way, not that way. This is, for them, the kind of ordered, thought-free life where everyone's forced to think about the other person first. That's their utopia. That's their heaven on earth. And, mm -hmm. uh, and when you start talking about reopening the economy, they hear that as, uh-oh, ending the Garden of Eden. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've been so caught up in the medical side of this, you know, thinking we're, everybody's fighting a virus when really we're fighting the almost absolute authority of government. And there's that old saying, question authority before authority questions you, right? Yeah. And yet so few actually do that. Now, here in London, we actually had one member on London City Council who quite properly resisted mandating masks. And, of course, in the Ontario legislature, there were two progressive conservative members who did so. One was Belinda Carholius and Randy Hillier, who called Bill 195 the Death of Democracy Act. Right. And, and to be more, more to the point, it's more like a Death of Freedom Act because they're, you know, using the 195 to extend the oppressive regulations, even though two weeks ago they ended the state of emergency. I mean, right. <laughs> emergency measures without an emergency. That's what they've created. And it lasts a whole year at least with uh, all they have to do is renew the regulation every 30 days. Uh, they don't need the approval of the MPPs, the elected legislators. They, this is just a, a regulatory matter. So the, the government of the day, which means the ministers or as it would be in the, in the United States, the governors or the, pro or the uh, president, same idea. In other words, the head of the, uh, the executive branch simply has to say, yep, it's still in force every 30 days. No approval oh. by, by any elected individual. Terrible. Yeah. Bill 195, uh, uh, I refer to it today as a more appropriate title would be the Death of Democracy Act. Um, yeah. Your place. Yep. The Death of Democracy Act. Maybe you're here more often, you'd, you'd see that. Um, the Reopening Ontario Act as stated by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, states it said illegitimate purpose and seriously fall, flawed. There is no need for this bill. And that's what I want to get into during this discussion is why. Why this bill? Hey, and that's, of the five W's, there is no W more important than the question why. Right? Because the government has authorities. It has a majority government. It can make 
any and utilize any authority that is lawfully allowed to do through the legislative process in this chamber. It's always had that authority. What this bill does is limits this Legislative Assembly's ability to scrutinize and examine what is going on in the decision-making process of certain orders that are included in Bill 195. Right? That's, that's important. One, uh, why does the government not want us to know what they are doing with those specific orders? I used to sit on that side of the house and I thought of my colleagues as champions of accountability. I thought of them as vigorous defenders of transparency. I thought of them as colleagues in arms of justice. And I say to them all, what have you become? This is Colonel Rickman. Establish a base wide feed in 10 minutes. What are you going to say to them? We found a way off, but everyone's going. You're going to lie to them to the very end? You want me to tell them they're all going to die? Now, if you're so gung-ho in saving more people, be assured no one's going to stop you giving up your place on the lifeboat. You know, Bob, um... We're talking right now about the coronavirus, but it's literally just one in a long chain of different horrible catastrophe things that the government tells us we now have to change our whole way of life to the new normal and yada, yada, yada. So we had Vietnam, the Cold War. We had the war in Iraq in 1990. We had the 2001 bombing. We had, subsequent to that, uh, the whole world's going to melt with global warming. Uh, Now we've got this. And every single time they tell us, you know, be afraid, be very afraid. And, you know, it sounds plausible. I mean, you see two buildings, huge buildings come down. It's That's pretty much a fact, right? Yeah, it's very different from fighting climate change and COVID-19. Right. No, but the difference is I watch those buildings fall in New York from the comfort of my home in Ontario, Canada. But the, with the coronavirus, they've really got a real good one here. They turn each and every one of us into a murderer. And so we're afraid of each other on the street. We not only separate by six feet, we'll separate by 16 feet. I've seen people, if we're going opposite ways on the same sidewalk, get into the middle of the road. I mean, they're dodging cars. It's mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. They've, they've created a situation where everyone's afraid of everyone else. And that level of terror, because you can't really avoid everybody else, you don't even want to avoid everybody else. You just, you don't even want to hug mom. I mean, how beautiful is that for someone who wants to instill terror you won't even hug your own mom for fear you're going to kill her because you're a killer they've turned you into the that the walking sin you know you're, you're it's as though you were born with original sin and now you've got to spend the rest of your life trying to make up for it you'll never ever get there but you know if you just follow the government slash god's will mask up cover up lube down with all the the various disinfectants and etc well maybe just maybe nana will live the government's treating us all like 
hospital patients, as though we all have a disease and have to be regulated by our doctors, right? Right. right. And then they can trace us and follow us and, and treat us not as citizens, but as hospital patients in, in a ward of some sort. But, and, but then it's as though they care for you, if, if you put it as that, in that way. Like right, I, right. people who are hospital patients, they normally care about. I think the better analogy is they're treating us like every one of us is literally walking the street with a shotgun ready to shoot the first guy they see. And so what they're saying is you got to put your shotgun in the holster. You got to put your knife away. And you're saying, I don't even have a knife. I don't have a gun. What are you talking about? You know, right. uh, uh, wait a minute. If I don't see you put the you know thing in the holster, I'm going to throw the cuffs on you and fine you a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, to presume everyone guilty is what they've done. And they've got everybody presuming everyone else is guilty. I mean, I was in a store the other day, some guys heard in the line, you know, you know, that thing doesn't work unless you wear it. And just the kinds of Nazi-esque, hey, he's not following the rules. He's not following the rules. Hey, everybody, kill him. You know, you know, it's, it's funny you mention that. I've got a little tiny letter to the editor here. It's like two sentences. In the photo of mask-wearing Premier Doug Ford getting his hair cut, he was wearing his mask under his nose. Yeah, <laughs> We have lots of information on why, when, and where to wear a mask. Seems we need to include the how. <laughs> <laughs> that just speaks to the whole absurdity of this exercise of masking. Yeah, but as I said earlier, you know, there are people who literally love this way of life. I mean, this for them is, as I say, going back to uh, the Garden of Eden or going back to live with mom and dad. I mean, think about it. They get free checks in the mail from the government, so they don't have to work. There's no more sweat of the brow, right? The money just comes. It's God's providing. And, um, you know, you don't just go out there and keep what you kill and try and find stuff and buy yourself a boat and buy yourself a house and everything else. No, 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 no. All that's provided. You don't even have to pay your rent. And no one can evict you. It's great. It's like one great big return to living with mom and dad. Free food. Well, free, well free. not everybody's in that situation, though. I mean, there are some that the government feels guilty about because they know they're doing them harm, right? Well, I don't think there's um, any guilt. They just think... I haven't, I haven't received any of those benefits. I understand people on pension got, you know, an extra 300 bucks or something like that, which wasn't even necessary. Well, even if you're they're, not getting money, though, there's some yeah. spiritual gain they get out of this. And what it is, is everybody's being forced at gunpoint, essentially, at, at, under threat of fine or imprisonment, to put others first, in other words, to be an altruist. This is altruism by point of the gun. And right. and this is everybody's dream who loves living as an altruist, who says, everybody should have to lay down their lives for me, and I'll lay down my life for them if that ever happens to happen. But in the meantime, lay down your life for me. Everybody cares about me. Everybody wants to support me, and, and nobody's judging, and everybody's careful about me, me, me. It's the most self-centered, ridiculously destructive form of living, and they think they can live it because they've lived it as children. You know, right. they, they're making the government their God. They're worshiping the God of government. And they're telling everybody else who gets out of line, hey, I'm going to report you to mommy. And it's, that's because they want this to continue. And the government being that God that they want, that mommy and daddy, they're afraid to step back from that role now. Because all those people who said, wait a minute, you're kicking me out of the home? I, 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 I won't be able to live by myself. I don't like the, the way it was before this disease hit. I like this now. Can't we just keep this going? Well, that's an interesting observation because I myself have sort of come to the conclusion that our politicians are as much being controlled as they are controlling others themselves. You know what I mean? There's, there's this psychological 
circle that's going on here. Well, I think it's the electoral circle. They're afraid that they're well, going to get yeah, well, sure. <laughs> they won't get reelected if they do anything that that all those those uh, whining um, children. I see, I see it far deeper than that. I this isn't just about electability. You can actually see the fear in people's eyes every now and then, especially the believers that this pandemic is the deadliest thing since the Spanish flu, which of, of course it is not. Well, it's hard for anyone who's paying any attention to actually fear that because there's no evidence of it. But when you start talking about evidence, it's like saying, you know, well, wait a second. There's all the evidence in the world that the Earth's moving around the sun, right? Don't just shush, quiet, don't. I'm going to report you. Yeah, but the evidence they see isn't around them. It's in the newspapers and being spewed at them all day long on the major media. That's the evidence. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so they can say whatever they want. If they And around them, everything's totally different. That what they see in the newspaper is what reality is for them. And that is a dangerous situation to be in. That's, I think, why there's so many people now saying that the mainstream media have ceased to be media. They're not... Anything now other than propaganda machines. Of course, they always again, were. Again, <laughs> again, that's the people like us. That's yeah. the, that, there's where the divide is. There are people who believe all that stuff. And who always and did. Like, and, and, and every time they cropped you out of a, uh, an, an election debate photograph or didn't mention you that you were even a participant in a debate, those news organizations were always doing propaganda. They were never not propagandists. They were always fake news. We've been contending with them for decades, not just since the internet. It's only because of the internet people are realizing how fake they are. And you know, that's it, true, Paul. Yeah. And and this, this pandemic, they're finding it more and more difficult to keep the people with evidence under control. But, you know, so what do they do? They resort to more and more fascistic levels of teardowns. You know, YouTube, that video goes. Uh, Twitter, cancel that account. Uh, Facebook, rip down that video. Get rid of that audio. D- don't, I mean, fact checking on Facebook? There's now a thing that says this post may contain information of questionable. Our fact checkers have determined that, what? There's a ministry of truth on Facebook? <laughs> I know. I know. It's absolutely absurd. Let's take a break, shall we? Sure. We now have evidence that proves that coronavirus is more severe than we told you it was going to be. As usual, things are much worse than the news says they are. And because assumptions are always 100% accurate, we're assuming that the actual effects of the coronavirus are as bad as the panic about the coronavirus is. We know the best medical science makes the most assumptions. And as you can clearly see by this graph, the more you stress yourself out through fear of the coronavirus, the more you strengthen your immune system to protect you against it, as exemplified by the hand sketch of Rocky Balboa. Accordingly, South by Southwest is now canceled. We're also taking precautionary measures in canceling the summer, all birthdays, the next full moon, the Olympics, and heterosexuality. Henceforth, all who do not enthusiastically participate in the widespread panic about the coronavirus will be known as virus sympathizers. And it's logical to deduce that all virus sympathizers want you to die from the virus. We're considering them to be just as dangerous as serial killers. Are there strategies available to help people increase their fear of the coronavirus if they're having trouble elevating their levels? Yes, the CDC recommends that you breathe rapidly and shallowly. This will excite your stress response while keeping your fear trapped in your body. We also recommend ignoring what's happening in front of you and imagining the worst case scenario and then pretending that's what's happening now, such as your children are dead, 
This will help traumatize you so you can properly benefit from sensationalizing about the coronavirus. Are there steps you can take to protect yourself from the coronavirus? Yes. We're recommending everyone practice agoraphobia, which means you don't leave your home because you're afraid something bad will happen. But also, the coronavirus is probably already in your home, so be scared when you're there as well. Current research in the field of bro science also shows you can protect yourself by wearing a mask and washing your hands like you have obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, it's important not to touch your hands with your own hands. We have suspicion to believe that your hands are infected with the coronavirus, and if you touch your hands, you could be infected too. And certainly don't put your fingers in your mouth. The idea that you can be completely negligent towards your health in terms of not sleeping enough, eating junk, being overweight, and not exercising, but now choose to take the painstaking measures of wearing a mask to protect your health not only shows you care about your health at a deep level, but will also more than make up for years of absolute neglect towards your health. Is there any hope? We're hoping and praying that a drug company coincidentally comes out with a vaccine that's somehow magically created with long-term studies to show its safety and effectiveness against the coronavirus within the next few months. Such a vaccine would be rapidly sold to hundreds of millions of people around the world, and it would also make the months of panic and sensationalism by the news outlets look like they were in on the most deceptive yet elaborate marketing scheme the world has ever known even though that's definitely not going to be the case. Given that the news is honest 100% of the time and doesn't have a vested interest in spreading fear like a virus to boost its ratings and ad revenue, is it safe to say that the news is being honest this time as well? Yes, it is. Now, considering that the coronavirus symptoms are very similar to flu symptoms and the fact that the coronavirus has infected a little more than 500 people in the U.S., resulting in 22 deaths, and the flu has infected 32 million Americans this year, resulting in 18,000 deaths, is it wise to have a thousand times more panic about the coronavirus? Indeed, it is. Additionally, though we recommend taking all the previously mentioned precautions, our estimates show there's a 100% chance you will be killed by the coronavirus. You're definitely gonna die. The only thing left to do is buy a casket now. And to get 20% off premium caskets at your local casket dealer, just use the discount code DEADAF. This has been a breaking news report on the coronavirus. Thank you and go back to sleep, America. question then. I want to change gears and talk to you about Twitter. Um, we reported yesterday that the Israeli government wrote to Twitter's CEO asking him to remove tweets from Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah Khomeini calling for the genocide of the Israeli people. Uh, the company refused to do that because they said that the tweets would quote comments on current affairs. I'm wondering uh, if the White House has a response given that Twitter has recently begun restricting the president's own tweets for glorifying violence, quote, glorifying violence and spreading misinformation 
and if you have spoken to the president about any further action perhaps he's taking on social media companies. Yeah, it's a great question, Ebony. I did see that New York Post story, um, and I thought it was very eye-opening, and it tells you where these social media companies stand, where they're not um, willing to, uh, to, to assess the Ayatollah Khomeini's tweets, um, but they are willing to assess President Trump's tweets. It's really appalling, and it just speaks to their overwhelming, blinding bias um, against conservatives and against this president. Um, and we are taking action. The administration is submitting a petition to the FCC for proposed regulatory changes to hold social media companies accountable for their censorship. Um, and this petition that was previously reported on um, earlier in the week asked the FCC to end the loophole that allows social media companies to escape civil lawsuits for their own speech, uh, fact checks, and deplatforming. And the petition seeks to expose social media companies to liability as a speaker or a publisher if they act as editors of content on their platforms or remove lawful speech based on politics. Um, and very good work by the New York Post in highlighting that issue. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. What about an issue like censorship? Doesn't, doesn't the gov- government have a more active role than just leaving us alone in the sense of uh, that it does have an active role in defending our freedom of speech, not just right. So not sitting in our way and letting us say what we want, you know? That's right. So, you know, you'll recall philosophy sort of has four branches. There's there's right. there's metaphysics and epistemology that tell you what's true and how do I know it? And then there's the ought branch, which is uh, ethics and politics. Uh, what should I do and what role should government have? And so you have to keep those four branches in mind when you're saying, okay, what should government do in a coronavirus situation and what shouldn't it do? I mean, briefly on meta- metaphysics, you go by the data right? You, you look at the data and you say, there is or is not a number of people dying, and this is how they're dying and whatnot. You do not look at, is it popular to do something? Uh, do I feel like it's, we should be doing something? These are all irrelevant considerations. We don't or care. Or do I think something will happen in the long distant future? Right. Like, will the look, temperature go up two degrees a hundred years from now when yeah, I can't even tell whether <laughs> it's going to rain on Friday, you know? Or will there be a second wave? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but years ago, with respect to these models, you've mentioned it on the show, and I, I'm a regular listener to the show as well as a contributor, but these models, you cannot base government decisions on models about predictions about what will happen in the future. When I was much younger, back in the 80s, I was doing, some people will be familiar with this idea of a neural net or a intelligent uh, computing, whatever you want to call it, but it's basically right. model making. And I thought, hey, what if I took all of the lotto results from the past? Would I be able to sort of pick or find out what the next set of winning lotto numbers would be? And so I trained up a a computer to know perfectly, given any 10 uh, consecutive lotto results, what would be the 11th? And it could remember perfectly, given any 10 consecutive draws, what the next draw was. So I think that's fascinating. So that means if I give them the most recent 10 draws, I should be able to figure out what the 11th one is. It was horrible. Couldn't do it at all. So there's a very big difference between validity in terms of modeling what's already happened and what they call predictive validity, which is given what's already happened, can you predict what's going to happen tomorrow? And just because you can model the past does not mean you know anything about the future. And that's the problem here. The governments have said, oh, an expert has said he's got a model and it predicts so many million will die. Therefore, we've got to act. Wrong, wrong, wrong. I I agree, but you know, it blows my mind that these so-called experts don't know the principle that you just explained. Well, that's because we elect... already know? Well, I mean, for example, in Ontario, who did we elect? We elected a guy who makes stickers for a living. 
What? He doesn't know anything about science or modeling or anything else. And so yeah, he, but even but 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 the people advising him, who are supposedly scientists and medical professionals, they are doing these models, and they're accepting them from people that. You well, know. again, some of the advice he's taking is from medical professionals, and that's different than, a say, uh, a statistical expert. A, a medical right. professional says to himself, what's my job? Oh, to prevent people from dying. So right. he'll take whatever he can get, any tool, right? right. He, doesn't, he doesn't get into the validity of statistics. That's not even what they're necessarily trained all that much to do. Physicians trained in the body and, and biology and chemistry, not necessarily well, in sure. statistics. That's why I've always maintained that every doctor is essentially a fascist by the nature of his profession. They have because to be. He has, they have to be, exactly. They have to say no to everything. They can't say, it's okay to smoke. You, you know, no, they, they would lose their license if they said stuff like that. Right, right. right. Which but is why you, you cannot defer to med- medical professionals when, when the job is to defend life, liberty, and property. They, those two jobs are not the same. They right. don't care about liberty. They don't care about property. They only care about life. And preserving it, and so they'll they'll burn the place to the ground if they think it'll create you know one percent greater chance that the guy will live. They don't care; well, it's not their job. The, that's the theory, but in practice, it doesn't look like that. We're seeing doctors or the official doctors, not the frontline doctors, almost taking an anti-life decision, like this advice from the AMA and the Canadian Medical Association to not prescribe hydroxychloroquine for people that they know it would be effective for. That is frightening. And for the medical profession to abandon its own proven medicines and things like that, it, that is not a medical profession in charge anymore. No, that's a, that's a political ideologue who's saying, look, you know, we are benefiting politically from the lockdown. Let's not forget, of course, the whole uh, thing that led to everybody pushing back against hydroxychloroquine, which was the president of the United States saying it was something that showed some promise. Well, if he says anything shows promise, then they have to take the exact opposite view, no matter what it is. If he says drinking water is good for you, they'll say, you know, we really shouldn't be drinking water so much. I'm convinced it's almost that bad. (laughs) But the point here is models garbage, data good. In other words, sick people, that's what you want to see. Predictions of sick people, irrelevant. And had we gone by the actual numbers, we wouldn't have tried to keep an unknown quantity of sickness below a threshold that was, I don't think in Ontario was ever even approached. You know, like we got to flatten the curve, flatten the curve, buddy. I think we've been way below it the whole time. Right. And so if we were there trying to flatten the curve and we succeeded, why are we cranking up the procedures when the virus has already worked its worst back in April? I mean, things have gotten better and better to the point where in April, we might've seen as many as 80 some odd deaths in a day. Now we're seeing as many as zero. And those are inflated to begin with. Right, because they, they were counting people who died who happened to have the virus when they died. You you die having had your leg chopped off by a shark bite, uh, that, but you had coronavirus. They call it a COVID-19 death. Yeah, ridiculous. But first of all, government cannot be basing their decisions on predictions. Secondly, they've got to use reason and, and logic, not fear and intuition and popularity. That's not a means to any kind of truth. Then they, then they have to say, well, what, what are we governing here? Are we governing pieces of wood and, and stone? Or are we governing, governing human beings? And if we're governing human beings, what's the nature of a human being? Well, it's a thing that can only survive if it makes the decisions it needs to make and acts on those decisions so as to get together the things they need in order to survive and to pursue their own happiness. Oh, so that's what we're dealing with. Yes, that's the entity you're dealing with. Okay, so policy has to serve the thing having that nature, not defeat a thing having that nature. And so if you say sacrifice is what we ought to do, how does sacrifice go together with living? 
survival right. and happiness. It doesn't. No, no animal in nature would, would survive on that principle, ever. It's as though they're saying, what we need to do is take all the dogs and throw them in the volcano and the gods will save us. There's yeah. no difference between doing that and telling people, you know what? I know you have cancer, but you're going to have to wait four or five months to get your diagnostic treatment because right now we're focusing everything on the anticipated wave of coronavirus people that never showed up. It saddens me to think how many people will die now who would have, if they'd had the timely medical intervention, wouldn't have died. All because of yeah. some dude in, in Britain predicting doom and gloom that never actually turned out because he wasn't basing it on data. He was basing it on a prediction set out in the computer. No more valid than my lotto number picking right. uh, was. And, and basically nobody's counting the people who are not dying of coronavirus, right? Because it doesn't suit their political agenda right now. And I think this whole thing is criminal. And I would like to live long enough to see the people who are doing all this legislation be held accountable. Do you ever see any such a such a possibility even happening? No, and part of that is because even if there was, a, let's say there was an actual fair process, which there wouldn't be. All the judges are appointed by the very people we're talking about, okay? They know where their bread's buttered. So, you know, this whole idea of the precautionary principle was the, the ultimate take-home message uh, presented by a judge following a, a commission. Yeah, royal on, commission, yeah. Yeah, on the SARS crisis in 2003. So this nonsense that we're living through right now, this overreaction, is exactly what a judge through a, a royal commission recommended be done. So we've already had it. Been there, done that. It, it made things worse, not better. And even if you could do it fairly... The problem is there's no way to, to say that grandma wouldn't have died if she'd only gotten treatment in April. We all know that, you know, you can't make those kinds of predictions. Oh, certain things you can do, like so-and-so wouldn't have gotten gangrene had they taken his leg off on time. But I think the majority of cases, when we're talking about illnesses, there's no way you can ever prove that the delay killed the person. And the That's true. And, you know, it, it's kind of, this, it's the same thing the other way around. They can't really prove that Mary gave Bill the coronavirus, just because they were in the same crowd together. How do you know they both didn't have it before they arrived at the crowd? Right. Right? Yeah. It, there's, and they, and so there's they're... no way you can ever do that, which, which speaks to the sinister evil of this. They have picked an issue that has no way to objectively prove itself. So basically, they put themselves in a situation where they can get away with murder, if, if I can put it that way, because I literally think that's what they're doing. Yeah, they, they can. There's zero accountability because there's no way you can prove the truth or falsity of any proposition. And, and so yeah, that... Unless, unless, unless you're the individual directly affected and you have some kind of evidence from a doctor in a lawsuit or something like that. Well, the evidence, but, you, can, the evidence you can and do have is that such and such an officer fined me $100,000 or that so-and-so punched me in the nose because I wouldn't leave the street without... You know, Those are all things that, that there will be evidence about. The government's reaction, in other words. Um, the problem is that if you've got a sufficient number of people who think, yeah, well, that's what the government ought to do because otherwise that guy would have killed granny. Well, you know, we're back to the morality of the whole thing. And the people who like living in this lifeboat scenario where everyone's forced to be living for the other guy instead of pursuing his own happiness. That's, that's where the cancer is. That's the worst cancer right there. It's the ethical cancer. Well, what's the matter with you? If you think we should turn her over, step forward. Cleus, this is murder they're committing. How can you be a party to it? Do you want to die? Daryl. Daryl, we have to think about the baby. Jordy rules. Let's go. Out of my way, Pat! 
This is Searcher calling the Dorian ship. The girl you want is in the emergency airlock. I tried. I tried to stop him. I don't know who I feel sorrier for. That poor girl you just condemned to death. Or all of you. No! This can't be happening! Somebody, somebody stop them! It's, it's not possible. Surely they're not going to kill her right there. That's barbaric. Prepare to execute sentence. We shall spare the sensitivities of those who cooperated with us. Disengage the video cam. Now you shall see that I do not shrink from the consequences of my judgment. They turned it off! Perhaps you are disappointed you cannot see the execution you so desperately wanted. So we've introduced you to the owners of the Attilus Gym in Belmar, New Jersey, a couple of times on this show. This morning, they were arrested. Why? For defying the state's mandatory shutdown orders. Those arrests come after a three-month standoff between the co-owner of the gym, Ian Smith, and the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, both of whom have been on this show. At one point, Smith removed the doors from the gym so the state couldn't keep them shut. Before reopening last May, he announced that he was willing to deal with the consequences of violating state law. You're openly defying him on television. What do you think is going to happen to you when you do this? We're prepared for any and all consequences. Our actions on Monday are going to be uh, grounded in the ideals of civil disobedience. He should have just set a federal building on fire, screamed the right slogans. Ian Smith would be fine, but he didn't. And so he was arrested. He joins us tonight. Ian, good to see you. Tell us what happened. Good evening, Tucker. Uh, so uh, from the last time that we spoke, uh, we had lost our newest case of contempt of court. And that was on Friday of last week. Um, the governor said that uh, and, and requested in court to take extraordinary measures to stop us from operating in business. And Judge Robert Lugie agreed with him. Um, my partner and I had had the doors removed since Thursday, and we had not left the building since. We had two weeks' worth of clothing, and we were prepared to stay inside at all costs. But we did agree that we would go peacefully if law enforcement came. That time came this morning at about 5, uh, 5.10 this morning when um, the county sheriff walked in the building um, and said that we were under arrest. Frank and I at that point went peacefully, um, and when we arrived back after being booked, uh, we had boarded up doors. I hope the sheriff was embarrassed. I assume he was. There are murderers walking free, a lot of them in New Jersey tonight. Maybe they should do something real. You went on this show. You knew that that was wagging a finger in the face of the tyrants who run your state. You did it anyway. Why? Because I'm not afraid of tyrants, and That's no American should be, because we outnumber them greatly. And the only thing that they run off of is fear, which is why you see what you see in the media, where they're pumping fear into the coronavirus when what they should be pumping is solutions. They don't do that. They don't ever offer any solutions. It's wear a mask, shut up, and wait for a vaccine. That's not public health, and I won't subscribe to it. Oh, that's <laughs> just the most moving thing I have heard. Uh, in a long time. And I just want you to restate for our viewers who didn't see your last appearance on this show, how many 
infections of COVID-19 have been documented in your gym so far? Just to give, just to give our audience some sense of the public health threat that you pose. Uh, at this point, we have record from June, um, June uh, that we, we reopened and allowed visitors to our facility. We have th over 13,000 visitors who have come to Attila's Gym Belmar and not a single case so far. Uh, Governor Murphy cannot say that about the, the uh, long-term care facilities that are 100% in his control that have been shut down since March and account for over 50% of the deaths in the state. Yeah, so you pose a documented, this is not speculation, the health authorities say you pose no threat at all, not one infection, and you were handcuffed and arrested because you defied Governor Murphy. You're a brave man, Ian, and I'm, and I'm grateful that you come on the show, and I hope you will keep us posted as to, to what happens next. Just one more thing to end the night, uh, Tucker, if I could. Um, Governor Murphy asked us for 14 days to shut down, 14 days. Today in New Jersey, it is day 132 of the shutdown. And I would just like everybody to think about that long and hard before they support his policies. Yeah. Once they get power, they never relinquish it. So, as you know. Great to see you tonight. Thank you. Well, one of the things you can't help notice, Paul, is that the stress of all of this has been placed on the business community. And that's not the virus I'm talking about. That's the government action we're talking about. They seem almost determined to destroy businesses. They give leeways to private individuals with respect to getting together and stuff, which totally defeats anything they want to talk about limiting the virus, right? Yeah. But when you walk into a business, especially at this time when all the cases are down, and now they make it tougher for businesses to act, and the businesses, they turn them into Gestapo agents for the government, you know, and then I hear politicians talking, well, we're going to educate the public. As I said earlier, all they're educating us about is that they've got a gun and we don't, right? right. If they want an education, why don't they tell us the facts? This running around with weapons and threats and fines is not education. It's no way to teach us anything about COVID-19 or about the SARS-CO2 virus, which they never mention. Right. You know, and I've seen all kinds of people paraded in the media who are supposedly doctors and epidemiologists and various virologists. And then you see their essays. And they don't mention their profession at all. They talk about this altruism, that if you don't sacrifice for the others, you're hurting everybody. And it just goes on and on. But business boy, I'll tell you, they're really nailing it to businesses. And it strikes me that that's what this is all about. You can see where the stress is. They want to kill small business and keep the large corporations going. And that, to me, sounds like this new reset economy they want to get into. Well, I mean, I, I can't know their motives. Um, I, I certainly know the effects. I mean, the effects they've had on small business. I've got, I used to eat uh, breakfast every morning at this one little restaurant. It was about halfway through my walk, my morning walk. Just a couple eggs and bacon type of thing. And uh, they were struggling when they first opened, but gradually over a number of months, this is just prior to the COVID, uh, they started to have a thriving business and I was really happy for them. And then all of a sudden, I remember the day I went, I went to the door and the, the waitress says to me, oh, hi, Paul, I can't let you in today. Uh, the premier just announced, you know, that we have to close, uh, but I can give you some toast and a coffee to go. <laughs> and I said, no, that's okay. Well, that, that restaurant, which was called Symposium, and it was wonderful. It was all decorated inside like uh, the School of Athens, incidentally. It, it's been closed for good now. And uh, it's a real sad, you know, story. But it's also, a, in my view, a criminal, a criminal um, outcome. 
I mean, this... I agree. I agree totally, and I don't care about their motivations. They can motivate themselves to, to hell, as far as I'm concerned. Yep. You know, the more I've been thinking about it, and when this all first started, I, I exercised. You know, I, I discussed. Well, what what would justify the government shutting something down that I could support? And you know, as this drags on, the more I've thought about it, the less I can find any reason whatever for governments to do anything even close to what they're doing right now. Um, no, I mean, again, you have to remember that what they're governing is human beings. And how do human beings survive? By producing and trading. And so they're saying, you must not right. produce and trade. And that's the same as saying, you must die. It's exactly the same. Yes. And yeah, you said something earlier, too, about the difference in the motivation, how they're trying to change us. This is one of the things that, to me, distinguishes the left from the right. The left begins with an ideology and tries to fit the human being into this crazy ideology. Everybody from Hitler to Trudeau has done it, right? Right, yep. <laughs> and whereas the right takes, you know, the, the genuine right, takes the opposite view. They look at humanity as you find it, as what it is, right? Yeah. And then try to draft laws and the principles of society that match that humanity, I always, human nature. I, I, I always think of it as the two Ds, Bob. One side wants to defeat human nature. The other side wants to defend human nature. One side thinks that we're born, you know, with original sin. The other says, what the hell are you talking about? I want to live on this earth and enjoy, enjoy this life. One side says, this life is nothing. This life is valueless. What really matters is where we end up after we are all dead. The other side says, what do you mean after we're all dead? When we're dead, we're dead. Let's enjoy life as we can. These, these are mortal enemies. These are exactly the same as set out in, in the old, you know, um, myths about... The, the falling angel. What does the falling angel do, right? He falls to earth. And, and what does he do? Why does he fall? Because he decides for himself. And what does he enjoy? Earthly pleasures, right? What are those clowns in the, in the Garden of Eden trying to do? They're trying to avoid having to earn. They don't want to sweat. You know, they don't want to earn by the sweat of their brow. They just want to have daddy provide everything for them. And they're angry with us because they see us, the people who want to live life on this earth independently, thinking for themselves, as conceited, how dare you think you're so smart, how dare you think you know better than God, or I mean government. Um, it's exactly the same. These And yet the irony is that those very people are dependent on the people that they are criticizing. Which makes because, them angry to no end. Right. They, it, it, they wake up every morning resenting the fact that they're dependent upon the people who are able to produce. And that's why, Bob, they're also against charity. The exact same people who are against charity and in favor of government-imposed wealth redistribution. The difference is, charity, you say, thank you, sir, for being so generous. Wealth redistribution, it's, give me that share of my money that is mine, rightly, by right. I don't thank you for that. It's mine. We're all in this together, like brothers and sisters, comrade. Give me my share. It doesn't matter who produced it. It all goes in the pot. I put my two stones in. You put your two carrots in. I get half your carrots. You get half my stones. You know, this, this is why it's so clear that this war we're in is a war against capitalism. And, you know, we always have been called a consumer society when that is a misnomer. Every society is a consumer society because everyone needs to consume to live. But what separates generally the West from the rest of the world, at least earlier on, was that we are a producer society. Right. And that is why the rest of the world hates us because we can outproduce them amazingly just because we adhere to principles of, of humanity, the things that make humans 
be self-motivated without having to be motivated with a gun stuck to their head. Well, it's like, it's like, you know, the old, um, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. So they look at that. They look at a statement like, like, like that and they say, what do you mean nature commanded? If we all just lived in accordance with nature, if we just obeyed nature, if we just ate the berries on the trees, ate the fruits, we shouldn't be eating animals. That that's hunting and destroying things. But if we just take the berries that were clearly there for us to take, then everything would be good. Now, there is a problem, we understand. There's only so many berries that grow naturally on trees, and we shouldn't do farming because that's interfering with Mother Nature. So what we need to do is cull the human race because let's face it, we're the real virus here. We're the ones Mm -hmm. making it difficult to live in accordance with nature. They hate humanity. They hate life. They hate everything about living as a human being. They resent it. They can't wait to die, frankly. They do not enjoy this life. They don't cherish it. They resent those who do. They resent those who succeed in it when they're failing so badly. And every opportunity they get to say, wow, I was right after all. See how life is when the government puts its boot on everyone's neck and we get to live like scared animals? Now, everyone's learning how great it is to live like this. Everybody the same. Everyone equally terrified. Everyone taking their instructions from the government. Everybody a child. Back to the Garden of Eden. You've certainly described those on the left. What about those of us who are on the other side of that school of thought? And, I mean, right now I've noticed that there are two schools of thought emerging on this whole big picture. One side is saying that we're winning the war, those of us with our perspective, and the other side is saying that we're losing. And how, how do you see the big picture? Well, losers can't win. So if, if what you do for a living to, is, is chop limbs off, Right? Like, let's just say you're sitting on a beach and you say, I'm really hungry, but I don't want to make any food or, or drink and like, grab any water. I think what I'll do is I'll take my knife, I'll chop off my toe and I'll eat my toe. And you're hungry again, so you just chop off another toe and eat another toe. And you keep going until finally you've got nothing left. You're gone. You cannibalize yourself. Well, that, that is survival by self-sacrifice. It's no different. Chop off your toe, chop off someone else's toe. The fact of the matter is neither one of you is going to go and get any food when you have no toes. So that... well, I was thinking. I was thinking more in terms of winning the the, the war on persuasion because uh, well, a lot of people, you know, like economically. Right? All I was saying is economically that that will always be a failure and always has been a failure. And the only thing that ever works is getting out there, working, earning, keeping what you kill, and trading. I mean, that's that's right. all that does work. And they always want to try and hitch their wagon to another guy's horse, but deny that the horse is really having any effect. They they want to say, oh, well, more or less, my wagon carries itself. No, it doesn't. You found a horse. You, you, then you said you had a right to put your wagon on the horse, that it was partly your horse, and any other excuse you can to not work, you know? But who's winning the battle? I mean, the, the battle is always going to be there. No one will ever win it because there's always going to be something for nothingers, and there's always going to always be people who just want to live and su- love and survive on this on this planet, in this life. There never has been a time when there were no people who thought, to heck with this life, I'm looking forward to the next one. And I'm willing to tear down anybody I can to avoid having to live like a a person has to live on this planet. I don't want to be productive. I want to live in the life that God Almighty or the, the man in the sky or whatever wants me to live later on. I want to start living it right now because I can't stand all this earning stuff and I can't stand all these people flashing in my face their gold and their cars and their houses and everything as though this planet is actually the only life they're going to have and that this is an illusion that maybe I'm never going to get that thing I wanted. How dare they make me feel so bad? I mean, I I think that's a war that will always go on. uh, The persuasion, if you're talking about like in 2020, who's winning? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I would say that things are looking pretty darn grim for freedom. 
The election, though, will be a good indicator in the United States because it's only a couple months away, three months away. And it will it will tell us what people are really thinking versus what they're willing to tell the cameras. My hope is that the jig is up, that people have understood by that time that you can't feed yourself by chopping off your toes. Uh, you can't and shouldn't try and get ahead by pu- putting everybody in their basements and not allowing them to work. Can't work. Um, right. And, and I'm hoping that the election will, will uh, show that. In other words, I'm hoping the Democrats lose. I'm not saying the Republicans are like the um, you know epitome of capitalism, but let's face it. I mean, uh, the, the Democrats right now are just the tool of the most radical leftists and anarchists on the planet. So if you want to see things go right down the tube really fast, let the Democrats win. I don't know that America's ready to get rid of America this soon, though. It might happen eventually. I think. Yeah, they talk. They talk a lot about you know we got to get back to the Constitution, and uh, I know you and I had a quick conversation the other day about you know how a Constitution is just the expression of a belief. It's not the cause or source of right. the values it expresses, and that's why it always comes back down to the people and to the necessity of a working philosophy, a rational philosophy. Our time's getting kind of short here, Paul. Was there anything else you wanted to say before we wrapped up? Well, I'm just going to make a little plug for your show because I'll tell you, I listen to it uh, on a weekly basis. uh, And it is one of the very, very, very few places where you will hear the material. In fact, I never hear half the material that you put on your show uh, that... um, in any other in any other venue and you know these shows don't fund themselves so i hope that um people will contribute to just right in every way they can to make sure that this voice needs to be or continues to be heard it needs to be heard um there's so many places that are being shut down where people are being shut out youtube twitter you name it people are being shut out of these venues because they're saying the wrong thing and thankfully uh you're saying the wrong thing all the time so i want to see that continue (laughs) well thank you paul well, here we are at the end of the show, and uh, you know we're facing this big reset of an economy, and everyone talks about the economy as if it were some kind of mechanical object, utterly oblivious to the fact that what we call the economy is only an abstract concept for the myriad of human relationships and activities that Paul and I were just talking about, both economic and personal. We are, in fact, what creates an economy. And there's no possible way to reset that without resetting each and every one of us. The only way to do that is by destroying all the voluntary and consensual human relationships between people, and that's what we see them doing. Absolutely. They are, they are replacing consent with coercion, which is what Pauli St. George, one of those rare clips on the show that we played last week, she called it torture, and I agree with her. Well, we have our own ideas about what and who needs resetting, but that'll have to wait until our next round, so be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So until tomorrow, this is Dr. Fraser Crane, wishing you a good day. <laughs> and, and good health. Hey, Fraser. Hello, Gil. I heard you coughing on the air earlier today. Sounded like you might be coming down with something. So I had this sent over from Rosenfall's Deli. Chicken soup, so lovingly prepared even the chicken gets well. <laughs> Thank you. That's, 
Very kind. And of course, I'd never forget you, Roz. Some lady fingers that had been soaked in rum. Mm. Much like her own. <laughs> I see, I heard this isn't the start of that nasty flu that's going around. If you want to take a couple of days off, nip it in the bud, I'd be happy to cover your time slot for no, you. No, no, thank you. I'll be fine tomorrow. Okie dokie. But, uh... Feel free to call me if you change your mind. Mmm, <laughs> plump, gluey, and guaranteed to rot your teeth. Yes, I don't like his phony British accent much either. <laughs> <laughs>